0: Hello, I'm Rona McAuliffe, and to celebrate Chachta Nguelga this year, we have a special piece from our Irish teacher, Inín Iverku. On top of that, we have a fantastic lineup again, from the brilliant T.Ys. We have part two of my chat with international rugby star Simon Zebo and Adam is also on the line with his grandfather, Rasim Agayev, all the way from Azerbaijan. But to kick-start the show, here's Hugh with
1: an international piece on China. Hello and welcome, I am Hugh McCarthy. Ever wonder how the most populated country on earth gets away with barbaric atrocities every day? Well here's how. Firstly, kill everyone who disagrees with you. You may have heard in the news recently that famous tennis player Peng Shai, 35, has been seen in public since accusing former Chinese Vice Premier Zhang Goli of sexual assault in a social media post earlier this month. A clear example of the Chinese government using their power to stop any accusations. True or not. This may sound like a bizarre thriller movie, but this is indeed reality. A statement from UN experts including Mr. Ahmed Ashid, Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, and Mr. Nils Melzer, Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment, on the disgusting abuse of the Uyghur Muslims. According to the allegations received, the most common organs removed from the prisoners are reportedly hearts, kidneys, livers, corneas, and less commonly, parts of livers. This form of trafficking with a medical nature allegedly involves health sector professionals, including surgeons, anesthesiists, and other medical specialists. At the beginning of April 2020, an allegedly racially motivated compulsory quarantine was imposed on many African people in Guangzhou, the capital city of Guangdong province on the southern coast of China. The Chinese government has denied any allegations of racism. The shocking measures were first reported by CNN, which exposed how the anti-immigrant laws had led to some African expats in the city being forcefully evicted and ending up homeless. Peng Shai, Uyghur Muslims, and blatant racism, what other horrible and controlling acts can this country perform? Well, the social credit system for one. China's social credit system has been compared to Black Mirror, Big Brother, and every other dystopian future sci-fi writers can imagine. The truth is much more intricate, and in some ways worse. The idea for social credit came to light in 2007, with projects announced by the government as an opt-in system in 2014. China's social credit system expands the idea of a credit score to all aspects of life, judging citizens' behavior and trustworthiness. Caught jaywalking, don't pay your parking ticket, play your music too loud on the bus, you could lose certain rights, such as booking a flight or even a train ticket. Alongside the possibility for abuse of power, the knock-on effects of nationwide surveillance and the likelihood of incorrect data, Marika Olberg, research associate at the Mercator Institute for Chinese Studies, notes that a few bad marks in a social credit record could spark a negative spiral. Once you're in a low category, it makes things difficult, she says. I see a huge potential for negative spiral. Such a system could further divide society, creating classes of people depending on their social credit, and this is where comparisons to TV shows arise. China's been giving a free rein to do what they see fit with little scrutinisation, and this needs to stop. If this doesn't happen promptly, China could lead us all to Armageddon. That's it. Armageddon out of here. Thanks for listening. Back to you, Ronan.
0: Ponshoktonagwelga, Akelora, Shotanishigwif, Peace
2: Misha in Univerhu,
3: is munter gréilg me agus and a new con tarachir
2: le Martino
3: Diron. Far a glanachre de gimshans boda se Imrochle. im bin an um sin arachir. Far a caif cleof Dogrim is an amann yarg e glonrú Grena or yurling von Nivroch an Rark sin arachir. Manoa Lochon. In Eartair Deochró, a Gauti Crapa, Scáli Cíosfúithu. Tá vhraith síthoch, sin Arachir. Tull volí phána, ag madí rába, chúrach, lánda éisg, ag cháitlán cládhig. Ar verval, ag náir sin Arachir.
0: Up next is part two of my big interview with international rugby player and monster player, Simon Zebo. Simon, thanks so much for coming on our show today. My pleasure, um,
1: thanks for having me. If you could
0: talk to, obviously, the Senior Cup team in Prez, I mean, a lot of those guys would have ambitions and there's there are guys that are on the Bone Shield squad and the Junior Cup squad and McCarthy Cup squads that are all aspiring, really, to play for Munster or for Ireland someday. Mm-hmm. What would you be saying to them? What advice would you be, I guess, giving them if, if you were just having a one-on-one conversation with them about the steps in a rugby career on, on the milestones and and all of that what would you be saying to them is the most important thing to bear in mind there'll
4: be bumps along the roads you know and you have to i suppose not giving up if you really really want to to pursue it you can't just if you have like a month or two months or six months of stuff not going your way you have to be incredibly determined to be a professional rugby player everybody says oh i could have been this or i could have been that but There's a reason why they weren't, you know, and a lot of it comes down to determination, having the balls to to do it, you know, and going out and getting what you want, perfecting your craft, you know, practicing on your skill set every day, thinking about the game all the time. It's an elite level job, you know, it's not something that you, you can zone in and zone out of, it's all or nothing really, so I think giving it your best, best shot is the only way that you will one, make it, or two, be happy that if it doesn't go your way, that you at least gave it everything you had and then you put that energy into something else the more suited to you.
0: And then, I mean, obviously, you know, rugby is one of those sports that physically it has a massive impact on you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've, I was watching Rugby Joe with um, James Haskell and Mike Tyndall and James Haskell was saying that, you know, every day he was coming home from training and there were days that he was in savage pain and days that he wasn't. And But I guess, is there a bit of the love of the game that really takes over that you can push through all that pain or if you do want to become a professional player does your mindset really have to be just made of steel? Is, is, is that it? Like, um, or is it, is it kind of not for the faint-hearted I guess?
4: Yeah, it's, 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 it is a tough game. It's a brutal game. Like you, it's car crash stuff every weekend. Um, but I suppose when you get to the stage that like James Haskell was describing there he he was probably in his late 20s, early 30s when this was happening to him, I suppose. And the older you get, the more you get to know yourself and know your body and you can manage yourself in different situations. And something for him might have been just maybe taking it down 5% in training and not going too hard into contact to make sure that you save your juice for weekends. You know, there's always tweaks that you can learn and uh, tweaks that you can make to to make the ride a bit more smoother, I suppose. Find, like knowing... What it is that makes you tick earlier will put you in a better position later than to not suffer what he was suffering. So it's very important to, to know yeah, what makes you tick and who you are and how to get by so that your best performance isn't on a Tuesday or Thursday, it's on a Saturday. As a player, you know, before a game,
0: mm-hmm. how much about bringing your best, how much of it is mental and how much of it is physical?
4: Um, I think it, it depends on the individual for me personally, it would be ninety percent mental, probably ten percent physical. And um, for other players, for example, like uh, Keith Earls or an Andrew Conway, they like to, you know, do a lot of gym and and uh, clock up a lot of meters in training session to feel good, or do some speed work before games, or powerlifting, et cetera, et cetera so that they feel fresh. And for me, I'd like to, you know, engage with the mental side of things a bit more and just kind of zone out and relax and, you know, spend time off my feet. Sometimes I might have to go to my family and just forget about rugby. And as I was saying earlier, it's you, you grow to learn more about yourself, the more you play and the more, uh, or the longer your career goes on. And um, for me, learning that the mental side was more important than, you know, physically training well that week or, or, or feeling fresh physically so um, yeah I it varies on the individual for sure.
0: And then how do you for instance I mean obviously going to Twickenham to play England or something like that I mean that's a daunting task. Mm. How do you mentally prepare for those big games in front of a big crowd like 80,000 people in Stade de France? Is, is it a very different mental process to prepare for for instance a Champions Cup game with Munster or an international game against England?
4: No you, you try and stick to the same preparation and not to I think when you change your preparation from week to week and you try and elevate a certain game more so than another game or you know value the importance level differently that's when you kind of find yourself undone then when you go from an international back down to a club game you could find your motivation lacking or, or what have you so for me I just try and and take each game as it is and you know, build excitement for, you know, for example, going to Twickenham, I just get really excited at the, uh, the thought of the occasion and running out, whether the crowd's with you or against you. You play rugby to enjoy yourself, you know, and sometimes along the way you can forget that. But for me, enjoy- a huge part of my enjoyment is playing in front of crowds and people and trying to entertain as best I can. Obviously, winning is the, the primary goal, but uh, trying to have fun and enjoy yourself, I try never to forget that. No matter if I'm eight or nine years of age or 28 or 29 years of age, it's, it's the reason why I play the game is because I enjoy doing it. So trying to enjoy myself as much as possible for those occasions and getting excited for them will be number one.
0: And I know it might seem like a small thing, but at, obviously at international level, the 1% are the big difference that being extra switched on. How do you avoid not sleeping at night before a game? You know, how how do you how are you not just tossing and turning all night long thinking about Twickenham? How do you make sure that you're completely rested and completely zoned in and
4: fully focused? Yeah, yeah, it, it it that's 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 a tough part, you know, but you you can't get too bogged down about it if if you don't have a good night's sleep the night before a game, it is what it is. You just wake up and you you potentially try and nap the following day, but these kind of things you try and keep them in your control as much as possible, but if some things go outside of your control, then, you know, um, I suppose you just have to roll with the punches. Um, but you try and stick to the same process, and it, it, like for yourself, maybe you haven't played in like a Twickenham, for example, so you, in your eyes, you might be like, oh my God, how would you ever get to sleep? But the more experience you get of playing in the big games, and for me, it started at senior cup level, the more experience, the more you get used to yourself, and you find what works, what doesn't work, and if I do X, Y and Z, maybe I won't sleep or, you know, or, you know, the list goes on and on and you incorporate recovery into all these things. And the more games you play, the more you know how to to get it right. And and uh, at this stage of my career, I know how to get a good night's sleep, for example, before a big game and maybe at 18 or 19, I I didn't. And it might have, you know, one week been good, another week been really bad. So it's just experience, just like anything else, the more you play and the more you, get exposed to these kind of situations and scenarios, the more you get used to it. And then, for instance,
0: in the build-up to any big game, for instance, the Six Nations, Grand Slam Decider, for instance, I mean, is are, are the players in the Ireland camp, the more experienced guys, are they helping the younger guys to kind of to settle in? Are they Are they helping them with their mental prep? Or is everyone kind of left to figure it out themselves a bit
4: no absolutely like you, you'd you help um, as many of the young lads as possible everybody gets some help you know like if it's your first second or third cap and you could be playing a huge game or grand slam decider as you said you're you're going to try and make young fellas feel at ease and feel more comfortable within the environment because we were all in that situation we were all one two or three cap internationals where you know that person's going to be really nervous the night before a game or the week of a game once your name gets named out by the coach. The butterflies start to come probably a bit too early and you just, these emotions are probably out of your control a little bit. As I was saying previously, it's all about learning how to control them and the more experience you get, the easier it becomes. But the older lads would definitely help some of the young guys feel relaxed, feel at ease, you know, try and keep the environment a bit jovial, joke, have a joke here and there and just sort of stress levels don't build up too early and um, you can exert your energy on the pitch as opposed to playing the game in your head the night before.
0: And then I've got to talk about, obviously, um, on TikTok, the <laughs> <laughs> <TikTok-y>. <laughs> the deliveries. Um, so obviously there's things like that happening in camp, but where did it come from that, that you decided to go and you know, jump Just on Johnny Sexton's know, delivery and I absolutely know. smash it?
4: Oh, any chance we get. Um, Myself, uh, Conor Murray and Ian Madigan, one or two others, you know, we, we were going to the World Cup in 2015 and um, we just wanted to have a bit of crack because we were going to be away for eight to ten weeks and we wanted to keep that camp life a bit entertaining. So Narcos, I think, had come out r- at around the same time. It might have been Narcos. It could have been some show like this where the cartel was, um, you know, the the main or Pablo Escobar or something like this. There was a cartel in the series, so we started to pretend that we were the cartel amongst the the squad in in camp. So myself, Connor, Madigan, and I, I can't remember one or two others. Um, used to just go around saying like, "Look, serve us our food or serve us our lunch or else." And at the start, people used to really pay any attention, but we'd you know try our best to actually go through with it so we'd wait in the corridor upstairs till that person was finished food and like one of us would tackle him around the ankles the other would like pull his t-shirt over his head and we would just start mess kind of fighting but and then we would just scamper away like run away like just um it would be very very funny and then it led to laundry getting destroyed and eventually laundry got burnt and different things set on fire yeah yeah it escalated quite quickly and usually the targets would be the Dublin lads because you know Nobody likes the Dublin lads. So. As, as, as you
0: said yourself, I mean, Leinster, England. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
4: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, usually Johnny Johnny has a real posh Dublin accent, you know. So we love taking the piss out of him. And any chance we get to to mess with him or, you know, beat him up or, you know, he'll do nothing either, you know, because just, he just can't take it, you know. And he, he has no option. He can't fight back. So it's just a bit of crack that we uh, kept going since 2015, but it makes camp life a bit more crack, I suppose. And then, sure, I mean, as, as you're
0: saying, obviously, there were things like the prank call on the Lions tour. But mm. who did you get on with the best on the Lions tour? Who was kind of the
4: person that you said,
0: ah, oh, they're going to get me through the day?
4: Uh, it was d- definitely Christian Wade. Definitely Christian Wade. And um, We struck a real, uh, a, a real close band real quick. And um, we were a similar age at the time. I think I was 22 or 23 and he was, yeah, 21 or 22. Um, so we were the two youngsters on the tour and we used to always hang out together go for coffees together have food together Um, and anytime there was the opportunity to have a drink or explore the Australian nightlife a bit we we used to tend to be within close proximity so um, yeah he's uh, obviously reached incredible highs in rugby and now he's moved over to the NFL and everything's going really well for him so he would have been the best crack and probably my closest friend on that tour what do you see yourself doing after rugby um, for the next few years?
0: Will we see Simon Zebo on the music scene somewhere along
4: the way? You never know. You never. I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt I'll become a rapper or a singer. Um, I do love music though. Um, my brother-in-law's in a, in a band called Hermitage Green so I'm constantly around him and uh, around music and you know they're practicing and things like that. I have a few friends in quite a few bands like Coda Line, Snow Patrol, I know like a good few people involved in music um, some French rappers and singers as well. So yeah, it would be a passion but, or a hobby, you know, just to, to sing a little bit. I, I performed one time with Hermitage Green up at a festival in um, in Dublin, I think it was, or Mead, um, Kaleidoscope it was called, and that was really, really cool. It was like playing a match in front of 80,000 people, you know, the kind of atmosphere and the buzz you'd get from performing. But going down that route as a career, I don't think will be for me. I think I'll, I think I will potentially go into business. I'll, I'll go do a bit of property. I'll do a bit of media. I'll do a a mix of things. Um, But importantly, I'd like to be around quite a bit or be in control of my schedule so that my kids get a lot of, a lot of my time as well. So managing the balance of work life and family life is important and will remain after I finish. And what is it that most guys do? Um if like once most of the guys on
0: the current Munster rugby team retire, what what's the usual career path that most of them take after rugby?
4: Yeah, there, I don't think there'll be one usual career path, but like I think a lot of boys have degrees as, and things like that, which is very important and and Billy, Billy Holland for example, who recently retired, has a degree in finance I think it is or accounting. And he's gone into now he's selling mortgages and things like that with his father in a a company based in Cork. And, you know, the transition, I think, having gone to college and studied what you think you want to do post-rugby helps a little bit. Now, it could have been something completely different and many others might study one thing and want to do something completely different at the end of their career. But generally, anybody who I've seen have a college degree in something tends to veer that way post-rugby as well.
0: And would you see yourself going back into rugby in some shape or form through coaching or something like that or getting involved in maybe one of the under 20 setups or
4: the Munster academy would you see yourself doing that at all I don't I don't know I I like I know how much work goes into being a professional coach um I've really good relationships with all my coaches yeah I know how much work goes into it I know the hours and hours spent on video analysis and the you know, the work that goes involved just to in, just into putting a training session together. Um, so wanting to be, you know, there for my family and my kids as much as possible, as well as working, I think coaching would be difficult to to maintain that balance um, just because of the hours that you need to put in. It would be like being a professional rugby player except way longer hours. So, um, yeah, I don't think I'd go down the professional route of coaching. Maybe it might help out a Cork or something like this, but yeah.
0: And will any of your kids end up going to press,
4: do you think? Yes, two of them for sure. Um, My son Jacob is going to be seven in May, so he's probably about five or six years out. Um, And he'll definitely be in here. He'll probably be gone, actually, all you boys And then my my youngest son Noah is is two. So yeah, hopefully we'll we'll still be in the country. My wife is Spanish. So I think somewhere down the line, she'd like to move back to Spain. But I think when the kids are a little bit older, not so young. So Um, I'll definitely have two boys coming in here for sure. Anyway, Simon, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And you're a fantastic interview and you have a very bright future ahead of you.
0: Now it's over to our in-house gaming expert, Owen Harrington.
5: Hello and welcome, I'm Owen Harrington, and today we'll be talking about the newest game released by Arcane Studios, Deathloop. Deathloop was released on September 14, 2021. It was developed by Arcane Studios and published by Bethesda. Deathloop is a single-player FPS. FPS stands for First Person Shooter. This game has a very simple but interesting twist. Time is caught in a loop, and the same day repeats over and over again. In this game, you play as Cole Vaughan, who is desperately trying to get off the island of Black Reef. There is only one way to get off the island, and that is by breaking the time loop. This can be done very simply by killing the 8 leaders of the island. The game refers to these leaders as visionaries. There is just one problem with this plan. You have to kill all 8 in one day. Because of this, the game requires an extremely detailed plan, but the execution of the plan seems impossible at first. The game begins when Colt wakes up on a beach with no idea who he is or where he is. Very soon after this, you're met by a mysterious woman named Juliana Blake, who very quickly kills you. After this happens, you wake up on the same beach, with no memory of what happened. But Juliana makes contact and explains the situation and the game soils. Cult is on life, where time is perpetually stuck, and murder is the only way out. The game plays heavily into the fact that death has no meaning in Life, so you see that people are doing whatever they want. Whether that's jumping off a cliff to see what it feels like, or trying to catch a couch you're building for no reason other than they can, and it will all be fixed the next day. This allows the game to threaten in death, murder, and many other things casually, allowing dark humour to thrive in the game. Black Life is split into four very different, large districts. Each district has its own clues on how to proceed, targets to kill, storylines across the story, or just better gear to get. Each district has its own distinct differences. From a city centre with a huge parody to a giant research station near the coast. Each area has a unique feel which helps the game not get too repetitive. The game allows you to explore one area at four different times of day. Morning, noon, afternoon and evening. And depending on the time of day there will be different things available and will force you to explore in different ways. This really helps stop the game from getting repetitive and adds an extra layer of planning your routes. Throughout the game, you are given many different leads that you can follow that allow you to get better weapons, new abilities, upgrades, or ways to take down multiple people at once. This part of the game easily became one of my favorite parts because it allows more strategy. It's because you are limited to doing four things a day, so you could spend one day getting better equipment or trying to finish one lead. By far, my absolute favorite thing in the game was the unlockable abilities. The game calls these abilities Slabs, you get these slabs by killing the visionaries, and each one has its own unique power. There are five slabs, the shift, the aether, the Nexus, the Havoc, and the Kinesis slab. The shift slab allows you to teleport a short distance. The Aether allows you to briefly turn invisible. The Nexus links enemies together so that the damage one takes is done to all. The Havoc increases the damage you do and lowers the damage you take. The Kinesis Slab allows you to throw enemies around using Telekinesis. These abilities are an extra layer to combat, whether it's more movement options giving yourself extra damage, or flinging enemies around to place to avoid damage. You are only able to equip two of these slabs at a time. Personally, the two I use are the Shift Slab and the Kinesis Slab because they help avoid damage and give fun alternatives to just shooting enemies. This doesn't mean that they are the best abilities, because someone else could say that the Nexus Lab is better than the others, another person could say that the Havoc and A's are the best when used together because you can avoid being hit and deal more damage. The best way to decide what ones to use is to pick the ones that allow you to have the most fun while playing. The last thing this game has up its sleeve is an online component. In this mode, you play as Juliana Blake and invade other players' games with one goal, to kill the player and stop them from crossing. While playing the single player mode, another player can join your game and when they do, they lock your exits from the area and you then have to kill the invading player to unlock the exits. This mode adds an extra level of fear for the player because they will always need to worry about someone invading their game and killing them. This game is one of the best games I've played in a very long time and definitely one of my favourite FPS's released recently. If I was to give it a numbered rating, I'd definitely give it at least a 9 out of 10, if not a 10 out of 10. So that's it for the latest in gaming with me, Owen. Thank you for listening. Back to you, Owen.
0: Talking about life growing up in the Soviet Union is Adam Hartley's grandfather, Rasim Aghaev, who is on the line all the way from Azerbaijan. Hi, I'm Adam Hartley and welcome to
2: Radio Prez. I'm going to be talking to my grandfather today in the capital of Azerbaijan, Baku, about life in the Soviet Union. So Baba, you're 81 now. What was your education like in the Soviet Union as a child?
6: Education was all-inclusive, compulsory and free. What do I mean by all-inclusive?
4: For example, In
6: my neighborhood, there were orphans whose fathers died in the war.
4: I remember one boy who
6: lost both his parents and his grandmother had to look after him. Despite all this, we all learned in the same class. My father was a judge, quite a highly respected job at the time, and yet we all got a free education together. Children who were orphans, oil workers, and fishermen's children.
7: We couldn't even imagine having to pay for an education. In my
6: family, there was seven of us. But our neighbor, whose father died in the war, went to school with us also. And I remember we were the biggest family in the school. When we would stand for the roll call in the morning, There were four sisters and three of us brothers.
3: So education was
6: absolutely compulsory.
7: There was no, I don't want to go
6: or I can't go.
4: You had to go whether you liked it or not. That's right, it was required and free.
6: I remember already when I was working, and even if you were born already, so not in my youth, then the first people who would offer a paid education came around, and it began to become more popular.
2: Okay, and
6: as a boy in the Soviet Union,
2: was there freedom of religious expression? The government...
6: The Soviet Union was a secular, atheist state, so belief in God wasn't accepted. For example, in school, nothing religious was taught, but at the same time, religion existed independently. Where I grew up, there was a church and a mosque, and you remember in the city, There was a synagogue near our apartment. So, religion was preserved, people came and went,
7: and they had what they needed to practice their faith. But there is
6: one detail, we were school children, and it was disapproved of. Not that it was forbidden, but we didn't go to places of worship, as it would have been frowned upon. Why? Well, my dad was a government official. If they found out at work that his son was going to church, this would have been disapproved of and there could have been repercussions. However, if I was the son of a layman, say an oil worker, they lived peacefully and did as they pleased as their faith had no wider influence. However, as my father was a judge, he was a government official who had to follow government guidelines and not to allow religion to influence his lifestyle and career. Another thing is, we had a traditional holiday,
7: Novrutsk Pairam,
6: which you remember. It celebrates both the New Year and the coming of spring. I remember we followed all the traditional customs. However, my dad, he didn't let us light candles. He let us do everything else.
2: Just not that. Why?
6: This is one of the most important aspects of my life, because we first lived in the city, but then moved not too far out, as my dad was designated a new district. Here there were a lot more Russian speakers than there were in the city, as there were simply more Russians and Ukrainians. I remember there were even Germans, so everyone was talking Russian, but I didn't know a word. So I learned Russian outside, when I was playing with other kids, hide and seek likes. So when the question arose what language I would learn, my older brother uh, Shingiz, he said he knows Russian and he's proficient. Let him go to the Russian school. So there I went. My three older siblings, who all went to school before me, all went to the Azerbaijani sector. However, Starting with me, we all went to the Russian sector. The times were changing. And how old were you when you went to school? I was seven, so that would be 1947.
2: Okay, Baba. And in the Soviet Union, especially in Azerbaijan, were you free to learn both Azerbaijani and Russian?
7: Yes, but my Russian was weaker as it's
6: one thing to talk while playing games outside and another to study in the language. My mother also didn't speak Russian very well, and at the parent-teacher meetings, the teacher specifically invited her out of respect as the wife of a judge to speak separately. The teacher would say, tell your mom that you're a well-able student, but a bit of a hooligan. My mom asks, what's she saying? And I told her how she was saying that there was no other student like me, truly one of a kind, intelligent and extremely well-behaved. So in Azerbaijan, under the rule of the Soviet Union,
2: you could learn in Azerbaijani and Russian. Yeah, yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. No, my older brother went to school and learned in Azerbaijani. But when he went to university, it was recommended that he study in Russian. Baku was different to other cities because it was such an international city. There were so many multilingual communities. The ability to learn and speak in Russian got rid of the language barrier and allowed all these different communities to communicate with each other, while their own languages,
8: like Azerbaijani, coexisted
6: alongside the state language across the whole Soviet Union.
2: Okay, Baba, I think that went really well. Thanks so much for your time. See you soon.
0: Seb is joined by our librarian Sophie, who has all the recommendations on World Book Day.
3: Hello, welcome to Radio Prez. I'm Seb O'Donoghue, and with World Book Day approaching on the 3rd of March, I'll be reviewing Jodie Pickle's novel, Wish You Were Here. For those of you who don't know, World Book Day changes lives through a love of books and shared reading. The mission is to promote reading for pleasure, offering every child and young person the opportunity to have a book of their own. Reading for pleasure is the single biggest indicator of a child's future success, more than their family circumstances, their parents' educational background, or their income. We want to see more students in press, particularly those who have not read that much before, to develop a great interest in reading for pleasure and for enjoyment. In this book, we take a closer look behind the curtains of the hysteria, mania, and pandemonium Caused by COVID as it rampaged through the streets of New York. We are immediately thrown into the picturesque life of Diana O'Toole. She seems to have everything a dream job, a beautiful home, and a loving partner, Finn. However, just as a couple are about to jet off to the scenic Galapagos with Marge on the horizon, disaster strikes. COVID emerges, and Finn, a successful doctor, has to stay behind to fight the outbreaks of the virus that threatens to consume the city. He tells Diana to still go on her holiday. What happens next throws the world upside down forever. Jodie Piggles, a number one New York Times best-selling author, from New York herself, and has sold around 40 million books worldwide, Wish You hear Here is Piggles' 25th novel, and in my opinion, this book is well worth a read, as it depicts the madness of COVID in a unique twist. What makes this book stand out, what makes you want to read it, is the introduction of COVID, a new concept that has been scarcely used by authors nowadays. This will surely change as COVID has dominated life for the last two years and will be the trend of new books being released, as Pickle describes the collapse of her native New York. That will end it for this review. I'm Seba Donahue and I strongly advise you to read Jolly Pickle's Wish You Were Here. We've got the school librarian here to talk to us about World Book Day, the value of the library, and how he can introduce us to new books we had never encountered before. Hi Sophie, can you introduce yourself to us and tell us about what you do?
8: Hi, I'm Sophie McKenzie, and I'm the school librarian here in Prez. It's my job to keep school reading for fun instead of just reading for homework. It's a bit like World Book Day every day here in the library, honestly, because you can get books for free. There's something here for everyone and no one is going to hunt you down and make you write an essay on what you're reading. To me, the great thing about the library is that it lets you take a chance on a book that you might not want to pay money for. When you buy a book from a shop, you know, you want to make sure you don't waste your money, so you go with an author you know you like. But with things like libraries and World Book Day, you get an opportunity to be more adventurous with your selection. You can take a chance on a book that catches your eye out of nowhere, something you might not normally read. It might be a terrible choice, it might change your life, but either way, you're free to make that choice yourself. In fact, I found one of my favourite books by stumbling across it in my school's library and taking a chance on it.
3: Really? So tell us more about this surprise favorite book that you found in the school library. What was it? Would you recommend it here to students in press?
8: Well, that book would be Melmoth the Wanderer by Charles Maturin, who was actually Oscar Wilde's great uncle. It's a gothic novel about a man who sells his soul to the devil in exchange for a long life and he wanders the earth searching for other people willing to sell their souls and he brings terrible misfortune wherever he goes. Uh, I'd say it's a good choice for older readers, not because it's particularly horrifying or inappropriate, but because the vocabulary is fairly advanced. I remember struggling with it when I was 16. I needed a dictionary for words like welter and exculpation uh, the way the story is told is also baffling
3: wow i'd like to think my vocabulary is pretty good that's taking it a bit too far so it's a fairly complex plot on top of that
8: well it's not so much the plot but the way the plot is structured because it's all told in the form of people telling each other stories and recording information in one case one character is telling another character about his experiences with melmoth And then begins to tell him the story of a legend about Melmoth that that was written down by someone else. In another example, a character reads a story about a character hearing another different story about Melmoth. And it's all interconnected and layered on top of itself in a very dense way. In fact, a lot of the storytelling techniques in Melmoth the Wanderer are similar to modern approaches to horror. The way the story relies on accounts that were left behind by people who survived encounters with Melmoth is pretty much the Victorian novels version of a found footage horror film. When you think about it, it's basically a curious person trying to piece together the truth about horrible events by looking at old recordings of what happened and getting drawn into the story.
3: From what I'm hearing, Melmoth sounds like the Blair Witch of his day.
8: Well, that might be stretching it a fair bit, but it certainly made an impact. Melmoth as a character had so much influence that he's inspiring authors right up until the present day. In 2018, best-selling novelist Sarah Perry wrote a retelling of Melmoth in which a woman is cursed eternally for denying the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Authors as well known as Nabokov, Hawthorne, Lovecraft and Moorcock have all praised Melmoth the Wanderer as a novel and made references to the character in their work. Uh, When he was imprisoned in Reading Jail, Oscar Wilde described himself as Melmoth. In my opinion, Melmoth the Wanderer deserves to be remembered as one of Ireland's most important literary contributions to horror, right next to Dracula.
3: So you can just stumble across a wild story like that on the shelves of your local library, do you feel the amount of long-running series like Darver Wimpy Kid* or *Percy Jackson* mean that young people are taking less risks when it comes to reading and not taking chances on weirder titles like *Melmoth*?
8: I think there are a lot of reasons why *Melmoth* never took off with young readers. Remember words like *exculpation* and *welter* and all the dictionary use I mentioned. And in terms of book series, I think to be able to hold the interest of a reader across an entire series. You do have to be at least a little bit of a good writer. I've read a lot of series and trilogies that have remained favorites, like "The Lord of the Rings Trilogy" and the Adrian Mole books. And I think people don't read series like this just because they're unadventurous readers or because they're a known quality. Uh, a lot of these books in these series are just good in their own right. I think people return to them because they genuinely like reading about these characters in these situations. Beyond that, having a comfort zone as a reader can actually be a good thing because it means you know what you like and that can help you branch out and look for books that offer something similar.
3: Okay, so book series do have their benefits, but I personally prefer one-off books, especially thrillers, because I feel like the pacing of books like these are a lot better. Would you say that these standalone books are less popular in the library have they been eclipsed by the series like Harry Potter?
8: Uh, Not at all. In fact, some of the most popular books in the library are books written by Michael Morpurgo and David Walliams. And they generally don't write series. Their books are not connected to each other. But students know exactly what they like about these books. In the case of Walliams, they like the humor and they like the themes of Michael Morpurgo's books. And that consistency is valuable to readers, I think. It's what they like about series like Harry Potter, but without the sense of having to read the next book to finish the story. The books are self-contained, and therefore, as you said, the pacing is much quicker and more exciting, I think. There are also plenty of great standalone thrillers for older readers here in the library. Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park and Le Carre's spy thrillers are eternal favourites, and I imagine the excellent pacing is part of the reason why.
3: Okay, so it sounds like variety isn't a problem at the library. Speaking of variety, this year's World Book Day has some interesting new additions to the list of token books this year. Do you think the book choices this year will appeal to young readers, or is the selection too narrow and out of touch?
8: Honestly, I've always respected the variety of titles you can get for World Book Day token books, and this year is no different. You've got funny books, fantasy stories, action, non-fiction, mystery, the works. Uh, We even have an Irish language book in the lineup for the first time, that's great.
3: Now that might be good for variety an Irish language book. But do you think kids will actually want to read that, or it just be a pick for enthusiastic Irish-speaking parents?
8: Well, on one hand, it might be that some readers would feel unfamiliar with casually reading books through Irish. Maybe they associate it too much with schoolwork. On the other hand, there are students who would be drawn to the novelty and the challenge of it. Uh, on top of that, the story of the king with the horse's ears, which is the story the book is adapting is a classic Irish legend and, of course, the illustrations by Shona Shirley Macdonald will be a big draw for younger readers. Either way, I'm just very glad that there are more options for Irish language books out there getting attention. A young person today looking for good Irish language books honestly doesn't have the best selection and I'm sad to say that that goes for the school library as well. We do have an Irish language selection here, but they're all a bit outdated, if you ask me. Any opportunity to get more up-to-date Irish books is a good thing in my opinion, regardless of whether it's the most popular pick or not. Not everything is a popularity contest, you know, there's something to be said for niche stuff that only a couple of people like.
3: So your motto in the library is that variety is king?
8: Yeah, I'd be happy to put those words above the door. Uh, Every reader is different, and like I said at the start, the best thing about the variety of the library is that it means it can surprise you. So this week, especially in the spirit of World Book Day, I would recommend everyone branch out in their reading. Uh, We have extra book tokens here in the library and you can exchange them for one special book at Eason's and Waterstones in town or at any participating bookstore. And if the special token books don't take your fancy, the tokens can always be used to get a discount on any book you like. So take a chance and go on the hunt for a weird book out there or right here in the library. Uh, I'll be on hand here to help you find something new and keep an eye out as well for special school events in the library to keep up the World Book Day spirit.
3: Well, that's it for World Book Day. Thank you, Sophie, for joining us.
8: Thank you for having me.
3: Back to you, Ronan.
0: to finish off the show, I recently caught up with Red FM radio broadcaster Jamie O'Hara, who talks about a day in the life of a journalist. Hello and welcome back to Radio Press. My name is Ron McAuliffe and I'm here with Jamie from Red FM. So Jamie, can you tell us what you do in your line of work? Hi Ronan, Uh, thanks for having me.
7: Uh, In my line of work, we do everything and anything. You're an expert in something for five minutes and you write the script and you might remember it or you might forget it. My day is split in two. I do outside reporting. And in the evening then from 4pm, I'll read the news on air. But you'll also do phone interviews as well, write the stories. We could be sent to jobs announcements, gigs announcements, um, the scene of a crime. The Taoiseach might be in town. Some visiting dignitary might be in town. You might be sent to a school. There might be a neighbourhood dispute. Um, Court cases, you cover those. Inquests. um, Everything from you know, the happiest days of people's lives to, unfortunately, sometimes the saddest days of people's lives. So it's very varied. And, and so how did you get into this line of work? How did you get into Red FM in the first place? I, I kind of fell into it. I My uncle was uh, still involved in radio. He's the managing director of three radio stations, one in the Midlands and two in the Channel Islands. So I always knew that that was something that I wanted to try. I went to UCC. I did English and History. And when I came back from my J1 in California, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went to work at Apple Computers in Holly Hill for almost two years. Coming towards the end of that, I said I wanted to do the broadcasting course at Gloucester Stefan Nefa. So I did that and um, wasn't sure how I was going to get a job. But Maureen Tuhig, who now works at 96FM, doing the exact same job as me, she was the year below me and she asked me, did I, did I want to go work at 96FM? Um, it wasn't. It was unpaid. And you were answering phones. And one day I was introduced to the head of news up there, Barry O'Mahony. And I just wanted to meet him. But he took me up around and thought I was looking for a job. And he asked me to come in the next day and practice reading the news. And he heard it And he kept asking me to come back and come back and come back. And next thing, I was working every Sunday. And then I was doing cover work. So it was either one day a week or 15 days in a row. And I was there for about a year and a half. And the job came up at Red FM full time. I would have been about 20... 26 or 27 at the time, and I really wanted a full-time job. So I applied for the job. I was interviewed by uh, Lana O'Connor and uh, Fiona O'Donovan. And about a week later, I got the call. I was full-time. So
0: that's when the real learning began. I can imagine it's really hectic, but do you get kind of just calls at random that you have to go here and you have to do this, even on days off and things like that? So yes, in my role now, I have taken on
7: it's a it's a kind of a hybrid role now and um, yes Saturdays if the Taoiseach is around I would have to work a Saturday but yes I, I, you could be at home and be be sent to something serious it, it, I mean it would want to be a very serious issue for me to be called in on
0: a Saturday or if the Taoiseach was visiting just for a few hours I would cover that as well. So for instance what exactly do you cover then so if the, Taoise- the Taoiseach arrives in Cork for instance take us through your typical day When he arrives. Okay, so when he arrives, he has been here a lot. So
7: I guess I would have a fair idea. Um, So for instance, this Monday, Monday just gone, I was in Terence McSweeney Secondary School up in Holly Hill. And he was there for one thing, but all the journalists wanted to ask him about other things like lockdown, COVID, uh, PCR testing, the availability of those. So you're there for the event, but you're there also to ask him about six or seven other things. Because they'll be in the news that day or something. Something might just pop into your head and you just say, Tishuk, can I ask you about this? So you go to, you go to the place, you wait behind this kind of tape. And then when he comes out, everyone just says, good morning, Tishuk, and people start asking questions.
0: So for someone that wanted to get into a career in journalism and a career in broadcasting, what would be the best avenues to go through? I would
7: say start off by calling your local radio station, asking, was there any roles there? In terms of you tell them what you want, but you know what I would actually do: send in a demo, record a demo on your iPad, your phone, whatever. Just record one because there's no point sending in a demo that's just a, or just a CV. That's no use. People want to people that are hiring want to know what you sound like and uh, say what your strengths are, say what you're interested in, and say what you're available for. And uh, that's the way I would do it. You sometimes you just have to knock down a few doors, and um, that's the best way of doing it. Brilliant! Thanks so much for this interview, Journey. Thanks very
6: much.
0: That wraps up Season 2, Episode 3 of Radio Preds. Thanks as always for listening. I've been Ron McAuliffe, and I hope you tune in to Season 2, Episode 4, which will be on the way very, very shortly. Slaan August Bannock.